Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I will try to see you tonight at 12 o'clock at your place. Put a light in your window at 10 o'clock for about 10 minutes. Don't have a light in your room at 12. I will come round to the back. Darling? Is that you? Hello? In the summer of 1902, Murder and scandal befell the conservative community of Peasenhall Parish on the east coast of England. While a summer storm raged, a young maid was killed in the house where she lived and worked. Her name was Rose Harsent. Her father, William, had the misfortune of finding her body the following morning. Rose! Rosie, my girl! Rose! Oh, no. Rose. Rose. He had led himself into her living quarters to drop off some clean laundry. But Rose's body was sprawled on the kitchen floor at the foot of the staircase leading up to her bedroom. She was wearing only stockings and her nightgown. And there were several stab wounds on her throat and chest. After she died, her body had been badly burned. It appeared that she had dropped the lamp when she fell, breaking it into three pieces. The fire destroyed most of her nightgown and charred the skin of her arms and lower body. There was a large pool of blood under the body, but there wasn't a single bloody footprint found at the scene. There was only the broken lamp, a broken medicine bottle, and a charred bit of newspaper. At first, authorities presumed that Rose's death was either an accident or a suicide. But upon closer investigation, Foul play was evident. Her throat had been cut, and the burns on her body were post-mortem. Rose Harsent had been murdered. But by whom? And why? Was it a jilted lover? Perhaps a jealous rival. A local outcast. Or a pillar of the religious community. Join us as we examine one of England's most notorious unsolved cases. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the case of the Peasenhall murder. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm your host, Carter Roy. And now, back to the sleepy parish of Peasenhall. Bye. 
These days, Pizenhall looks like a place caught in time. With its rolling green hills and perfect hedgerows, it's a perfectly picturesque English village. Located in Suffolk County, it's about three hours north of London on the East Coast. With a population of just over 500. An annual event is the Pizenhall Pea Festival. As in sweet peas. That's right. Several peafowl families also make their home there. So there are peacocks just wandering around all the time? Yep. Oh, a quaint. Well, given the size of the population, you may be surprised to learn that there are actually two butcher shops in this tiny town. Ooh, nothing like a little healthy competition. Of the two shops, Emmett's holds a royal warrant, as it has for decades, to supply the Queen's family with their exceptional sweet pickled hams. A nice little claim to fame. Well, that, and the grisly murder that occurred just across the road from Emmett's shop. Legal scholars have described the Peasenhall case as being shrouded in an impenetrable atmosphere of mystery. Perhaps the biggest mystery of all is how tensions rose so high in this religious community that they resulted in murder. At the time, there were all sorts of atrocities happening in workhouses and in the teeming streets of London. Jack the Ripper had terrorized Whitechapel just a decade earlier. But Peasenhall Parish was far removed from all of that, and embodied some of the most conservative views of the time. To call its inhabitants conservative during Victorian times puts them on the very far side of the spectrum. That's exactly right. Some have described the Victorian members of Peasenhall Parish as nearly Amish in their pious and cloistered ways. Then, as it is now, mystery and scandal surrounding the murder inspired all sorts of gossip and theories. Not to mention the ensuing legal case, which required two trials and the evocation of an obscure ruling to put the matter to rest. Only for it to be reopened by a high-profile barrister a century later. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. And there's a lot to get to. Suffice it to say, Rose Harson's murder rocked the parish. And the story turned sordid and scandalous, although things started innocently enough. The Crisp family hired 20-year-old Rose Harsent to be a maid of all work in their home, Providence House. The patriarch, William Crisp, was a Baptist deacon and a church elder. The Crisp family was very well regarded. Rose was poor, but she was ambitious and clever, not to mention beautiful. You'll be responsible for the cooking, the cleaning, and the laundry, as well as any other household matters that may arise. Yes, ma'am. And you'll board in the quarters above the kitchen. It's plain but serviceable, and I expect you'll be quite comfortable there. Yes, ma'am. You'll have the Sabbath off for worship, as well as half a day on Wednesday. You'll have your own entry by the back stairs. And while I'll not be monitoring your comings and goings like a governess, both the deacon and I expect you will behave in a manner becoming a young lady of your station. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. That meant with propriety and decency. As in, no wild parties and no male guests. Rose was considered a member of the Crisp household, and any bad behavior on her part would reflect poorly on her employers. Rose was extremely lucky to get such a great job. Given that, one might expect that she would do everything in her power to hold on to it. Which is why it was all the more shocking when the results of her autopsy were revealed to local authorities. I regret to inform you that you'll have to alter your report, Chief Inspector. With regard to which aspect, Doctor? 
You had previously informed me that there was only one victim in this crime, but my examination revealed that there were two casualties of this murderous attack. And where's the second? In this room, Inspector. This is a very serious accusation, Doctor. Who was it? I don't like to speak ill of the dead, and hate to think of tarnishing the poor girl's honor in the wake of the shame and despair her family is already experiencing. Not to mention the crisps. I would thank you to speak plainly, Doctor. It is rather difficult to file a proper report without a thorough understanding of what it is exactly that you are trying to say. There was an unborn child. By my wager, Miss Harsent was about six months along. Well, that provides us with a clear motive. And a suspect, of course. I suppose you're right. Despite her age and position, there were many in Pisenhall who found the revelation of Rose's pregnancy less than unexpected. Rose was known to have several admirers among the men in town, and it developed a bit of a reputation. Aside from her pregnancy, there was plenty of evidence that Rose knew more about worldly passions than she led on. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Oh, she was a harlot. That's hardly a fair accusation. And what would you know of it? I think I'd know better than you. You don't chat with the young men like I do. I don't need to chat to tell me what mine own two eyes have told me well enough already. Well, she was a rare beauty, that's what. (laughs) Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Hey, come on, Mabel. Tis evil to speak ill of the dead. I'm not speaking evil of anyone living or dead. I'm merely reciting a bit of verse. As investigators went through Rose's personal effects, they discovered a collection of X-rated poems. I say, what have we here? Looks like some local swain fancies himself a bit of a Shakespeare. More like the Earl of Rochester, I'd say. Who? A libertine of ages past. The quintessence of debauchery? Uh, Never heard of him. I wonder if she really did all these things. Whether the verses were based on actual events or strictly fantasy is lost to the annals of time. But they had been provided to Rose. Apparently at her request. By a young neighbor, Frederick James Davis. Come on, Freddy. Just a verse or two. What if someone sees? Who's going to be looking in my private affairs? You know it'd be me, if you'd only give me half a chance. And I know more than one other fella who'd say the same. Come off it, Freddy. 
Hand them over so I can have a bit of a giggle to myself when I'm all alone in my room. I knew as soon as I laid eyes on you, you were going to get me into trouble, Rose Harsent. And how did you figure that? I said to myself, Davis, steer clear. A woman that bewitching has got to have some degree of sorceress. In that case, you better do as I say or I'll lay a hex on you. (laughs) So was Davis the one who got Rose pregnant? Well, the authorities couldn't say for sure who the father was, but they could take a pretty good guess, and it didn't involve Davis. Exactly one year before the murder, Rose had been scandalously linked to her neighbor, William Gardner. William Gardner was considered an admirable member of the Pizenhall community. He was foreman at the local seed drill works. A trustee of the Sunday school. The choir master. And a married man. William Gardner had himself been born out of wedlock in a workhouse. Some of the poorest conditions in England at the time. But William managed to rise above his station through hard work, education, and marriage. His betrothed, Georgina, was the daughter of a Methodist grocer. Their marriage secured his position among the respectable class. Although it is worth mentioning that Georgina may have weakened her own bargaining power by getting pregnant before their wedding. In an attempt to avoid gossip, when the gardeners arrived in Pizenhall, they lied about the age of their oldest child by claiming she was a year younger than she actually was. Good to meet you, Mr. Gardener. Mrs. Gardener. Pleased to make your acquaintance as well, Mr. Rouse. This is my wife and our two eldest children. Eddie, say hello to Mr. Rouse. How do you do? Pleased to meet you, my dear. How old did you say you were? Going on 11. Rather tall for your age, aren't you? <clears throat> yes, uh, she's our Amazonian maiden. Ah, I see. William and his wife had been together for 14 years and had a total of six children together. He was also a lay preacher in the Primitive Methodist Church. Primitive Methodism was a major religious movement in the 19th century. It was started by a group of people who wanted to get back to the basics of Christianity. It was mainly comprised of lower-class congregants and focused on the concepts of damnation and salvation. The style of its preaching was meant to be plain-spoken and passionate. And passion was something Gardner had in spades. Many complain that they know Christ, pray to Christ, and are conscious of Christ, but that the Father is far away and impalpable. They are therefore straining after some new vision or experience of God and undervaluing the religious life to which they have already attained. It is a profound mistake. It's hard to know exactly when Rose and William's relationship began, if in fact it existed at all, but it can likely be traced to choir practice. That was lovely, Miss Arsent. Truly. Thank you, sir. I know that it is wicked to feel so, but I've always been a bit vain about my voice. There is no wickedness in acknowledging a gift given to you by our Heavenly Father. In fact, it would be a sin to hide that light under a bushel. You must always share your light with the world. I've heard it said that those who sing praise Him twice. And so it is when you sing, Miss Arsent. But you praise Him three times. For I, too, give him thanks and praise for such exquisite beauty. While the rumors of their relationship had never been substantiated, they were started by two young men, George Wright and Alfonso Skinner. 
Wright and Skinner reported having seen Rose and Gardner enter Crisp's place of worship, a small building confusingly called the Doctor's Chapel. Now, as the Crisp's maid, Rose had every reason to be in the Doctor's Chapel. Keeping it clean and tidy was very well part of her regular duties. But considering the time and the place, it was a bad idea for her to be seen alone in there with any man, let alone a married man. Especially doing what Wright and Skinner claimed to have overheard. Then we hear all matter of rustling and laughing. Then we hears her say what she's been reading the Bible about what they just been doing in Genesis. Genesis chapter 38 verses 8 and 9. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother. Well, that doesn't leave much to the imagination. Well, not if you take them at their word. But why should we believe these two busybodies? Why not? Why make up a story like that? To hurt Rose? Well, maybe she had spurned either Wright or Skinner, or one of their friends. Davis? It could be. Maybe they had it out for Gardner for some reason. Perhaps a work-related gripe? Could be. But whatever their motivation, when Gardner found out what was being spread around town, he was furious. He wrote to Rose directly. Here's what it said, exactly. Dear Rose, I was very much surprised this morning to hear that there is some scandal going the round about you and me going into the chapel for immoral purposes, so that I shall put it into the other hands at once as I have found out who it is that started it. Bill Wright and Skinner say they saw us there, but I shall summons them for defamation of character unless they withdraw what they have said and give me a written apology. I shall see Bob tonight and we will come to see you together if possible. I shall at the same time see your father and tell him. Gardner broke the news of the scandal to his wife immediately and denied it. (laughs) Of course it's not true. Swear to me, William. I'll not be made a fool twice over if you're lying to me. How can you believe this nonsense? I'd sooner ride Emmett's prize pig down the high street than behave so foolishly. Whether or not it happened matters less than what people believe. If they think you've done it, it's as well as if you had. What's interesting to note here is Gardner's behavior. He addressed the issue quickly, openly and directly, displaying a great deal of intelligence and character. As well as an understanding of human nature. It's true. The best way to avoid gossip is to take away the mystery. Whether or not he was guilty, Gardner did exactly the right thing. He informed Rose, and he told his wife. He didn't try to hide anything. He met with his accuser face to face. Skinner was an employee of the drill works, and Gardner called him into his office. I know what you've been saying about me and Miss Harsett, Mr. Skinner, and I demand that you issue a formal written apology. I'm afraid I can't do that, Mr. Gardner. I'm a man of my word, and I know what I saw, and I know what I heard. Think very carefully about your next words, Mr. Skinner. I'll remind you that I am still your senior in both age and station. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Both Skinner and Wright flatly refused to apologize and stood by their story. The damage had already been done. 
Gardner's brother elders in the church had already started an investigation into the accusations. The senior members of the parish held an informal trial on the question of Gardner's morality. Although Wright, Skinner, and Gardner all testified, Rose was suspiciously absent from the proceedings. In reading Gardner's letters from the time, it's hard to tell if he was trying to be forthright, expressing a righteous sense of injustice. Or is he a guilty man, squirming because he's been caught, attempting to inform his accomplice of his PR strategy? It's awfully hard work to have to face people when they are all suspicious of you. But by God's help, whether they believe me or not, I shall try and live it down and prove by my future conduct that it's all false. I only wish I could take it to court, but I don't see a shadow of a chance to get the case, as I don't think you would be strong enough to face trial. They didn't take it to trial, but there was a hearing. The elders were unconvinced. But they were far more concerned with a damaging scandal against the church than the reputations of William Gardner, Rose Harsent, or the small-time spies Wright and Skinner. We, the elders of the Methodist Church of Peasonhall Parish, St. Michael's, rule that the charges against Brother William Gardner are unproven. Thank you, Brother. Not unfounded, mind you, but unproven. We sincerely hope this ruling puts the matter to rest. And we can all move beyond this unpleasantness as we continue on our journey of service to the Lord. Amen. The elders hoped that the rumors would die down and the whole thing would blow over. Naturally, it became a favorite subject among everyone in town. What else was there to talk about? Peas? Peacocks? Pickled ham? It was a dark time before the advent of the podcast. Maybe it would have been a good time for everyone in town to reread The Scarlet Letter or The Crucible. The events bear eerie similarities. Well, this was Victorian England, not the Puritan North American colonies. And there wasn't any explicit witch hunting going on in this situation. But it still couldn't hurt to remind themselves that these situations tend to end in tragedy. But was any of it true? Of course it's true. Those two ninnies don't know the first thing about women. They couldn't make up a story like that if they tried. I'll bet that's true. God bless the poor girl who ends up saddled to Skinner. Perhaps Miss Harsent can offer her a word of advice. Lie back and think of England, love. It'll all be over soon enough. (laughs) (laughs) Another lay preacher, Henry Rouse, took a special interest in the rumors. Apparently, Rouse was jealous of Gardner's position in the church and wanted to see him taken down a peg. Just weeks after the incident at the chapel, Rouse claimed to have seen William Gardner and Rose Harsent walking down a lonely lane one night. Rouse claimed that another scandal might do the church great harm, and so he took it upon himself to give William a lecture on propriety. It is with the utmost urgency that I beg you to cease this indecent behavior with that housemaid. There is more than just your reputation at stake. Think of your family, your children. You are right, Brother Rouse. It's so good of you to think of me. I can't express the depth of my remorse for my actions and my gratitude for your concern. I am simply doing my duty as a member of this congregation and as a servant of the Lord. I know that you would do the same were our stations reversed. You have my solemn vow that nothing untoward occurred, nor will you have any reason to suspect any in the future. It won't happen again. Can you guess what happened next? Did it happen again? Just one month later, while Rouse was preaching from the pulpit, he happened to look back at the choir. 
The choir? In front of everyone in the church. Right there in the middle of the sermon, Gardner was sitting with his feet in Rose Harson's lap. His feet? The horror. Well, it's not the kind of thing we'd consider scandalous today, but considering the context, it would have been a pretty flagrant move. Wait a minute. Has this been verified? Gardner was trying to save his good name among the people in the town and the church. Why would he do something so openly scandalous? And what about his wife? He must have known that word would get back to her. Doesn't make sense. It does seem like a gross accusation on Rouse's part. Maybe Gardner and Rose were doing it in a way so that only Rouse would see it, just to taunt him. It is such a subtle and specific accusation that it might be 100% true. But it has been well documented that Rouse had it out for Gardner. He might have made it all up. If Rouse planted a false story to purposely undermine Gardner, he did it perfectly. And yet, Gardner denied everything once again. There was nothing untoward about our exchange today, or any other day. I am the choir master, she is a member of my choir. That is the extent of it. Do you think anyone believed him? I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt, but evidence seems to be mounting against him. And then, sometime in late November of 1901, Rose found herself pregnant. As you might imagine, she was desperate to keep her condition a secret. She stood to lose not only her reputation, but her job as well. Did you manage to get through the ironing this morning? Yes, Mrs. Crisp. Left it hanging in the deacon's chamber. I say, Rose, are you feeling all right? You're looking a bit peaked. No, ma'am. I mean, yes. Just a bit tired. Been staying up too late reading. Ah, what do you read? I prefer poetry. How lovely. Well, be sure you lace your corset as tight as you can. It's good for the posture and circulation. Yes, ma'am. Are you sure you're all right, Rose? I'll not have you bringing illness to this household. If you're under the weather, you can go straight to bed. I'll have one of the gardener girls come over and help in the interim. No, really, ma'am. That won't be necessary. I'm feeling fine. Not knowing where else to turn, Rose made another request to Frederick James Davis. Ah, the neighbor who had a crush on her. That's the one. I need it, Freddy. Let me help, Rose. I can help. I know you can, Freddy. Which is why I'm asking you to bring me a book that will teach me how to make this go away. Please, don't make me do this. There's another way. I'll marry you. I will. I don't care what you've done. I love you, Rose. I can't do that to you, Freddy. I can't do that to myself. I've sinned. I acknowledge that. But now I need to find a way to undo my sin before my entire life is cut short and my good name is dragged through the mire. And so, Frederick James Davis provided Rose with an instruction manual to terminate her own pregnancy. That's incredibly dangerous. The doctor found evidence of the attempted abortion during the autopsy, but it had failed. Rose's situation grew increasingly problematic until the night of June 1st, 1902. When she received a letter scheduling a midnight rendezvous. That ended in her murder. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue the story. The initial theories were that Rose had committed suicide. God bless her tortured soul. 
May she find peace in the great hereafter. <laughs> Sorry, girl got just what she deserved. Tempting poor Mr. Gardner the way that she did. Who's to say he ain't the one who started it? Old Georgie ain't much to look at these days. Who could blame him? Rose Harsent was a Jezebel right from the start. She never had me fooled for one minute. Good riddance to bad rubbish is what I say. Given what we know about Rose's situation, it does seem plausible that she might have taken her own life. A young unmarried woman facing public shame in a staunchly religious community would have ended up a single mother with no support whatsoever. She would have been labeled a fallen woman and almost certainly fired from her position at the Crisps. And possibly forced to leave Peasen Hall altogether. A single unwed mother would have little to no prospects for either herself or her child. When the abortion failed, death may have seemed like her only option. But while that theory seems reasonable, there were plenty of reasons to presume Rose's death was not self-inflicted. For one, there was no suicide note. Secondly, Rose was found stabbed and burned, not a particularly common method of suicide. Some suggested her death was an accidental suicide. She fell on the stairs, breaking the lamp in her hand, and was stabbed by the broken glass and burned when the flames leapt onto her nightgown? <laughs> I guess that's possible. No, it isn't. Just listen to the description of her injuries. There was a puncture wound in the breast caused by an upward thrust of an instrument having a sharp point and a blade. The throat had been slashed across from ear to ear by two distinct cuts inflicted with such force that the windpipe was completely severed. On the right cheek were a bruise and a small superficial cut. And there were numerous semicircular cuts about the hands, such as would be caused by warding off blows. Defensive wounds. Still thinking it might be a suicide? I guess not. But what about the missing footprints? How could there have been such a bloody scene, but not a single footprint? Police suggested that Rose's attacker stabbed her in the chest, then turned her around and slashed her throat from behind, carefully avoiding the splatter. Mm, I'll buy that. Plus, the murder weapon was missing. If Rose injured herself with a knife, where did it go? Okay, so Rose was murdered. But she was clearly a woman with secrets and linked to more than one man in town. What made everyone so sure it was Gardner? There was more than speculation linking William Gardner to the scene. As in? The letter found in Rose's room, asking her to meet at midnight, looked to be written in Gardner's handwriting. Okay, that's one thing. The letter was also sent in an envelope matching the type found in Gardner's desk. Could still be coincidence. The note instructed her to put a light in the window at 10 p.m. So? It's worth noting at this point that the gardeners lived a mere 200 yards from Providence House, and one neighbor recalled seeing Gardner standing in front of his house just before 10 p.m. Can't a man stand on his own front porch? Sure, but he was facing Providence House, where the neighbor also reported seeing a light in an upper window. Uh, okay. That's two things. Or is it three? Additionally, James Morris, a local gamekeeper, had been walking on Peasenhall's main road early in the morning and provided more damning testimony. Morris provided authorities with a sketch of the footprints he saw. Footprints that matched the distinctive boots of none other than... William Gardner. It gets worse. Gardner owned a penknife that doctors agreed could have been used as the murder weapon. It had recently been cleaned, although there was blood found inside the hinge. How did he explain that? 
I had recently used it to dress a rabbit for my family's supper. Uh-huh. I remember the newspaper found under Rose's body. The burnt one. It was the East Anglian Daily Times, but the crisps were not subscribers to that paper. So the killer brought it along and left it at the scene. Do you know who did have a subscription to the East Anglian? The gardeners. Worst and most damning of all, the broken medicine bottle found next to the body had a prescription on it for Mrs. Gardner's children. Geez, Gardner might as well have signed his name at the scene. But isn't it all a little too convenient? Gardner was hardly a professional criminal, but he was an intelligent man, and all evidence points directly to him. Would he really be that stupid to leave such blatant evidence at the scene? Are you saying you think he was framed? I'm saying it all seems much too simple. It was well known that Gardner had rivals in the town. Henry Rouse, who envied his position in the church. His original plan to disgrace Gardner fell through. But what if Gardner was accused of murder? That would bring him down for good. What about Frederick James Davis? He who harbored a deep and lasting, unrequited love for Rose, and who we know was willing to take risks for her sake. Maybe he was tired of being spurned, and he flew into a rage. If I can't have her, no one can! Sadly, that sort of thing happens all too commonly. Ah, there's also Skinner and Wright, the two who originally reported having heard Rose and Gardner in the doctor's chapel. We know Skinner and Wright had a reason to dislike them, but was it enough motivation to commit murder? Maybe it was the Crisps, who were sick and tired of Rose's bad behavior. That would explain why they didn't come running, although they reported hearing Rose's scream in the dead of the night. Mrs. Crisp, did you hear that? It was the wind. There's a storm on. It sounded like a woman's voice. The wind often does. Go back to sleep. There's one more person who might have been motivated to commit the crime. One with a very personal connection to the whole situation. The one who stood the most to lose if her husband was found guilty of having an affair with a young housemaid. Georgina Gardner. No matter how you look at it, the Gardners had the clearest motivation for wanting Rose Harsent dead. Which is exactly why, three days after Rose's death, William Gardner was arrested. Can I help you, Chief Inspector? Good day, Mrs. Gardner. We have come to speak to your husband. Is he about? If this is about the Harsent girl, you can save yourselves the time and move right along. He had nothing to do with all that. Regardless of your opinion, I will need to speak with your husband directly, Mrs. He was at home with me the whole time, sound asleep right beside me. I was up with the baby, and I would have known if he had gone out. If you please, Mrs. Gardner, where is your husband? He's at the works, earning an honest wage to support this family, to put food in the mouths of his children. Thank you, Mrs. Gardner. Sorry to have bothered you. So was it William Gardner? Or someone else? Who wanted the young maid dead? Was it a single attacker acting alone? Or was there a conspiracy to kill Rose Harsent? Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter 
at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll continue our investigation into the notorious Peasenhall murder. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and written by Lauren Cannon. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors include, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Joshua Kahn, Janice Liebhart, Harris Markson, Nicholas Massu, Steve Pinto, and Brooklyn Sarver. 